If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Is this really happening? This is really happening. I can't fucking believe it. I'm so nervous right now. Are you actually? <laughs> My bum hole's twitching and I think that she'd like that. I think she would really like that. We, we all do. <laughs> Hi, this is the Unsung Podcast. Um, I'm Mark. That's Chris. He was just talking about his bum hole. <laughs> and this week we're joined by... Marissa. Marissa again. again. Thanks for having me back. Marissa specialises in all the most controversial episodes we we bring her in for like <laughs> use her as a human shield i'm yeah. a i'm a i'm a controversy myself what can i say it's, it's like you're made of teflon like, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so where should we begin with some admin <laughs> start with some admin yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh, somewhere safe somewhere safe yeah get to your safe spaces folks um so the last episode we did was uh, Diskin uh, by the drum and we actually get reached out to by two members of the band completely independently of each other so if you haven't listened to that go and listen to it um, hopefully we can cook up something for the name in future yep. it seems to have went down really well with a lot of our fans as well so you know that's always good to hear it's one of those surprise episodes where you're looking forward to doing it but you're like I don't know how this one's going to land and then it just kind of surprises you and people really warm to it yeah. I, it was really interesting because the overwhelming impression I got from fans, people on the Triple E group, things like that, was that, that they liked that band, but they'd written off that album. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly, exactly dead on what we're trying to achieve here, where you're like, yes, that is a fucking overlooked classic. And I would say the vast majority of them have at least reappraised it positively. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not some of them, I, I think there's loads of them flying off the digital shelves in the <laughs> eBay and stuff, people reinvesting in them. Discogs. Discogs. It's getting a big run on discing right now. Yeah. You did it, guys. You did it. Um, but the reason that I brought that up is because, as Chris just mentioned, we have a thing called the AAA Facebook group, which you can get access to for only four measly pounds per month. Four measly four units, of, units currency. of currency. And Europe. if those are British pounds, then the longer you wait, the less it will actually <laughs> cost you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, 
but if you if you want to give us a little bit more, we also have a record club, which we keep banging on about. And the reason we keep banging on about it is because it's really benefiting artists. We fucking love doing it. The people love getting records off us. Do you want to explain what it is, Chris? Yeah, we buy uh, in bulk from people who we think are great artists or bands or labels, uh, records that we particularly love, and then we mail them out to you or we digitally send them to you if you go for the kind of middle digital tier. Uh, the, the the ballers, the rollers, uh, what's gangster parlance for people with money? Um, I would say ballers is probably... Ballers, ballers right, cool, I got it. <laughs> See, guys, I've been doing my homework this week. Um, so the ballers, I get... An analog Ball, record, an ballas, ballas. Um, <laughs> they get a record through their doa, and they also get uh, they they also get a different but equally brilliant digital album uh, into their inbox. Inbox. That was a bit boosting, 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 boosting. Anyway, so that's what the record club is. Get on it, please. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artists are really grateful. So anyway, we'll not waste too much time on that. But please go to the Patreon and at least subscribe to the low tier because we're putting a lot of work into this and we really could use some support. Um, but if not that, give yourself a little present and sign up for either the digital one or the analog one. The analog one, the price will vary based on your postal area, but we'll make it worth your while. And we'll also send you the odd freebie, which I'm sure some people can probably testify to. Yeah, uh, and if you want to do it as a one-off payment, you can also do an annual subscription up front if you want to do that. So, and you get a, you actually get two months off by doing that. So, yeah. I mean, if you've got the cash, then. But also, if you just fancy checking it out for one month, that's you fine. Do that you don't have to commit to it. You can you can dip in and dip out as often as you want. So, go up tiers, go down tiers. You know, do whatever you want if yep. you want to stick around. So, yeah, patreon.com forward slash unsungpod. That's where you will find all the goody goody goodies. One more bit of admin before we get torn into this. Fucking highly, highly problematic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, expletive-strewn episode. Lude. In two weeks' time, we're going to do a kind of themed episode. We focus on the bands that perhaps weren't particularly successful or even particularly good in and of themselves, but were remarkably fecund in terms of producing great bands from the, the performers within them. We're going to focus on an example from Glasgow. We'll leave that to near the time. But, uh, you know, those kind of groups, I, I think I used the Yardbirds, although they're pretty successful, but mm. bands whereby there were maybe two or three, maybe even more members that went on to do great things from a fairly humble core. Um, so we would love to get some suggestions from the audience. You can contact us via the various socials, Twitter, or Facebook, mm-hmm. Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a TikTok yet, not, not just because Mark's shite at dancing. Um, <laughs> Come on, but, yeah, that is true. That is true. <laughs> or if you're on the AAA group that we mentioned on Facebook, you can just inundate us with all kinds of suggestions, and then we'll try and factor some of those into the episode when we go to record it. Mm-hmm. That'll be in a couple of weeks, but don't hang about because if you do make good suggestions, we'd love the time to actually go and listen to them a wee bit before we start recording. Yeah. Um, so, and like Chris says, just get on any platform at all, just get at us and we'll, we'll consider that. Um, it's, as Marissa said before we started recording, it's kind of like the Nexus episode, yeah. in a way. Yeah, you know? it's very nexus isn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, speaking of Nexus, <laughs> <laughs> this week we are doing something we said we were going to do a while ago. Um, quite a while ago. Quite a while ago, and it turned out we couldn't just, we just couldn't pull it together, because as we explained in the last week's episode, two cis white men from fucking Scotland 
can't really get away with talking about this record without having somebody that's not a cis white male from Scotland in the room. <laughs> yeah, we we were we were re- like playing chicken with this episode and the episode one, and we veered off into a wall for a good few months, mm-hmm. uh, and then finally found a mug, um, a mug, a yeah. third, <laughs> third host to come on and just take a share of the criticism. Yep. Uh, especially for this episode, mm-hmm. uh, for reasons that will become very apparent, I've prepared the prop, and this is the prop. That you use uh, when a cis white male, uh, a honky, starts weighing in <laughs> on some <laughs> I, I know where this black is going. female rapper's record. And it goes a bit like this. That's going to be my honky alarm. And nice. any time I've got a hot take that you involves comedy, I'm going to whip that out. Okay? <laughs> um, so... The album we're doing this week is Hardcore by Lil' Kim. It's our first, it's our debut record from 1996. Do you want the reason why I picked it first? Please. Okay, so... Because you're a masochist? <laughs> oh, you know, there is that, of course. But, um, so... I came across this album because uh, there's a song called Love Again on the th- the second or third one, the Jules record. It's totally escaped me, but it's got Gangsta Boo on it, who's from the Three Six Mafia. And her verse on it was like, holy shit, that's really mental. She's talking about, she's basically been very sex positive in a song where the two guys are being, shall we say, sex positive, but on a misogynistic way. It's a really good song anyway. like where the fuck did that come from and then i went down the rabbit hole and i emerged <laughs> i emerged with this record it's really an interesting choice uh, sometimes on the show we pick something that has actually been very commercially successful we've done that with nine nails for example uh this album i would say is probably the biggest selling thing we've ever covered by some measure five million records six more than six, six million copies she uh, kim uh, Lil Kim or Kimberly Denise Jones, Queen B, the Queen of Rap, uh, has sold <laughs> among many other names. <laughs> has sold fifteen million albums at least and had thirty million singles. Uh, that's before streaming even became the, the name of the game. I think that's actually less records than any else have sold overall over the course of their career. Possibly, but this is a fair bit more than the Downward Spiral sold. It's also, by the way, the highest ever debut sales for a female rapper. Um, and there's a good reason for that, which we'll probably touch on as we yeah. go through this episode. Um, yeah, so sometimes we get accusations of that stretching the label unsung. Stretching credulity, shall yeah, we say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's interesting because when we do unsung, it's unsung in context. Not everything is some obscure little noise record from fucking Shetlands. It's about the unsung artists compared to the sung artists in those categories. And let's be honest, rap and hip-hop... Mm-hmm. Mid 90s mm-hmm. turn millennium and on when she's been at her you know commercial peak, it was a huge selling genre, mm-hmm. like the biggest selling genre. Yeah. And thus her sales, whilst very respectable, uh, are are not up there with any number of the, the, the biggest male artists, especially yeah. in, in that genre. I think that that's, that was one of the reasons why I, I, I kind of picked it. And then 
as we kind of go through, as we go, th- as we kind of meander through this episode, another reason why I picked it, and this is, this is actually something that, that became clear to me as I dug into the record, dug into the artist, is that generally when you think about best rappers of all time, there are no women in that top 10 list, mm. if, if they're even in the top 50. And I can think of three off the top of my head without even taxing my brain that I think should be in that conversation. Lil Kim being one of them. And I think from those three, she probably is the most unsung. But we'll talk about that as we go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, art, just to give her a bit of context, artists who cite her uh, as an influence publicly include contemporary folk like Doja Cat, Rihanna, Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion, all of whom will make a, an appearance in this conversation. Uh, surely the highlight of her career was a cameo in the film Zoolander. Must have been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, also in 2002, she did the entrance theme for Trish Stratus. I did see that. Time to rock and roll, which was used. Which I, think, I didn't even know. Yeah, until, <laughs> until Stratus retired. Um, but yeah, Lil Kim said she was influenced by MC Light and the Lady of Rage, who had been and on also Salt and Pepper. Salt and Pepper, yeah. Um, her songs No Time, Big Mama Thang and Not Tonight, Ladies Night were each listed on Complex's list of the 50 best rap songs by women. Mm. In, in June 2018, Lil' Kim was honoured with a proclamation by the New York City Council's Black Latino and Asian Caucus for her contributions to hip-hop. In 2012, she was listed on VH1's 100 Greatest Women in Music list at number 45, the second highest position for a solo female hip-hop artist. Uh, the highest was Missy Elliott at number 18. I'm the hottest round, I told your mother... Y'all can't stop me now. Listen to me now. I'm lasting 20 rounds. And if you want me, then come on, get me now. Is you with me now? Then biggie, biggie bounce. I know you dig the way I switch my style. Uh, that list also featured Queen Latifah at 34, who for some reason wasn't counted as a hip hop artist in that what? journalist's opinion. Uh, Nicki Minaj was at number 40 Something that I'm sure will piss off Lil' Kim For reasons that will become clear (laughs) later on Uh, 1997 Lil' Kim had promoted uh, Hardcore by performing on uh, Puff Daddy P. Diddy's No Way Out Tour Which became one of the highest grossing hip-hop tours of all time An estimated $16 million And that same year she ended up launching her own label Queen Bee Entertainment She's made multiple lists of great rappers and many of whom she's actually collaborated with, including Lisa Left Eye Lopez, Missy Elliott, Eve, Eve, uh, and Foxy Brown. So yeah, uh, she is acclaimed. I would say acclaimed, yeah, but in a very race and gender specific way. In a yeah, in a very sort of qualified way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to do our basic history? I was going to say before we do the basic history, is it maybe a good idea to get a temperature on the room as to what people generally thought about? Let's do her. it. We'll go through her life story, which I think is. Pretty fucking fascinating in and of itself, anyway. Without bringing in all the other things, which you know are rel- relevant to, to her particular story, compared to a lot of other female rappers. Um, so, Chris, how much did you hate it? <laughs> <laughs> or how much did you hate our music? I suppose is what, what I would what I would probably want to get to now. I have spent this week 
sitting like a dog watching a card trick trying to understand what exactly the fuck it is that everybody is staring at and why uh, I just musically don't speak this language mm-hmm. and whilst I appreciate aspects of the production obviously I am so thoroughly alienated by most of what goes on here uh, that it's hard for me to give any useful musical opinions. I will do my best. Mm-hmm. I've managed to wring some notes <laughs> from from the record. The vast majority of my commentary is going to be contextual and sort of quasi-political mm-hmm. um, because I really don't have a lot to bring to the table in terms of appreciation of the music itself because <laughs> I'm a honky. <laughs> Marissa? Um I feel I feel fairly neutral about that album. Um, actually, I echo most of uh, what Chris said. I do not find it very relatable, um, mm-hmm. believe it or not. But I found it powerful and empowering, and I I respect it, and I had fun listening to it. I hope Dave's listening to this episode because he should be here. <laughs> <laughs> Dave would have had a lot of yeah, a lot to say. Olympic. Musically, Although, musically about it at least. Dave probably saw the controversy a million miles away, and that's why he bailed out this podcast <laughs> months and months ago. Yeah. So let, let, let's go through our. Uh, it feels like it was more than months. It might be a year. It feels like it could have been a year ago at this point. To be honest, um, let's go through our basic history. Um, as Chris said, born Kimberly Denise Jones in 1974, July 11th, to be precise. Um, she grew up in Brooklyn. Her dad was Linwood Jones. Her mother was Ruby Mae Jones. She had a brother called Christopher. Um, her mum and dad divorced at age nine. Um, she said her dad was very abusive towards her mother, physically and verbally. It was the physical abuse not alluded to. He was very emotionally and verbally abusive. He was an ex-Marine, the guy. Uh, but she said, the only mention I saw of physical abuse was she claimed that she'd seen her mum with black eyes and her mum had said, oh, I fell down. Which obviously mm. suggests physical abuse but in mm-hmm. terms of her sitting watching her dad wallop her mum I don't think that was ever actually said well to put two and two to put two and two together and hopefully get four her dad was physically abusive towards her as she's said the, the clip that I saw was on Ruby Wax interview in the, in the late in the early in the mid 90s and she was kicked out of the house at 13 by her dad um, and she lived in the streets at that point and um, so I mean if he's abused towards his daughter, probably abused towards his mum as well. But who am I to say? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm just being careful with the case itself, sticking to the facts. Man, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, she was. Uh, I know sexually abused by a, a member of the family, and has said that she uh, chose not to dwell on the pain of the experience. Uh, it's not something that she's discussed a lot. Mm-hmm. So after she was kicked out at the 13, um, she did whatever it took to make ends meet, which included working at Bloomingdale's, running errands for drug dealers, which is something she speaks about in a couple of her songs, a couple of her records, amongst other things. I I don't want to read too much into things as well, but the context in which that line was delivered was, yeah, I was running errands for drug dealers and doing whatever it took to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Am I incredibly cynical? But I, I felt like there was something implied in the in the positioning of that in her comment. Um, apparently, she also would uh, trade sex for food and housing. There um, you go. Then, so okay, you know that is. I'm not completely cynical. Then. <laughs> yep. um, yeah. She went to school with Nas and Foxy. Yeah, Brown. she ended up going to school with Nas and Foxy, which is, I mean, 
Foxy Brown, I don't think Time's been particularly kind to her, but Naz, you can't fuck with Naz, really, can you? I think, like, she's not, I mean, I think it's a two way street, um, but yeah, she she really struggled to finish school, as I understand it. She mm-hmm. did like two and a half years, dropped out, then went back for a year and a half at a different school, which is where she ended up uh, I mean, crossing them. paths with them. Yeah. Um, and as she was in school, that's when she met Biggie. Um, uh, Biggie, not Biggie. <laughs> Big E? Biggie. Or Biggie? Biggie. Oh, Biggie. So, B I G G I E. Yeah, basically, yeah. Or so large E. B-I-G-G-I-E, yeah. Biggie, Biggie. Imagine they didn't even write the big, just mm-hmm. any time you wrote it, a bit like Prince when he was a symbol, you had to find a font with a fucking massive point setting <laughs> on the E. The notorious B-I-G, often called Biggie Smalls, um, or Biggie... Christopher Wallace, I believe his name was. Yes. I think that's his real mm-hmm. name. And she, she, he ended up becoming a very instrumental figure in her life, particularly as, you know, a musical force, but also she still doesn't shut the fuck up about him, even on record. <laughs> she, <laughs> Fair enough. She's quoted as saying, "Biggie easily accounts for eighty-five percent of my career." And I, I, I've just I've seen their their uh, meeting referred to as be, her being discovered by him. I think she was still in school when they originally crossed paths. I read that somewhere. I don't know if that timeline or that chronology totally marries up. Um, but she she joined that group, Junior Mafia, with him when she was nineteen. Yeah, so Junior Mafia was kind of something that he made. By the point, by the time that he'd released his debut album, he was starting to become quite a powerful figure in terms of, you know, like, his clout with the record label exec and stuff like that. So I, one of his pet projects was, like, Prince would have done with, like, Vanity Six and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, the family and the time and stuff. Junior Mafia was definitely a project that he helped to, to bring together. He put Kim in that project because, in his, in his words, it's a paraphrase, but it was more or less like, I saw that Kim had the drive and that she wanted to do something, and I knew that she was equally as good as any of the guys that were that, that, that she was rapping with. So she was added to Junior Mafia. They released her debut album, Conspiracy, in 1985. Most of the songs on the record are written by Biggie, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Went top 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two, I think two of the singles were kind of... Reasonable hits Yeah Players Anthem And I Need You Tonight um, And another one Get Money Which is a lesser hit Basically three singles Landed quite well So Around about this time Even though He had Bad Boy Records With P Diddy Puff Daddy um, He also had clout With Atlantic And he was able to get His friends Record deals with Atlantic Junior Mafia Being one Lil Kim Being another As as, as I guess Among many others Have now since Faded into obscurity um, Men are excellent Aren't they Marissa oh, yeah. They just do these things For you uh, you said it. Some of our first solo credits are on, are on Biggie's uh, debut album, Ready to Die. Um, she appears on Fuck Me and Friend of Mine. Don't love no hoe, that's my principle. Cause uh, bitches come, bitches go. That's why I get my nut and I be out the fucking dough. They might be the one to set me up. Wanna get their little brother to wet me up. That's why I tote text and stuff to get them off my taste. Now, you, you, let's not skate by the fact that in 96, they also became a, an item. Yeah, so she was, what was, the, what was the quote that I read about this? Like, so Biggie was seeing Faith Evans and she is often cited as being responsible for the breakup of that because she was his mistress. Hmm. Mistress, it's an interesting word. Mm-hmm. Uh, in '96, during the recording of her debut album, she got pregnant with his child. Um, but it, in '99, 
she made it public during an interview with the source uh, that she decided to terminate the pregnancy and her quote was since I already knew the kind of relationship that Biggie and I had and I knew that having a child was something that couldn't take place she kind of clarified that in 2010 interview with Ed Lover on Power 105 uh, revealing that Biggie had been abusive including an instant where he choked her at the point that she passed out Um, in 2017 she further added that her relationship with Biggie had been very violent Uh, a guy called Jermaine Dupree claims that he witnessed Biggie pull a pistol out on her at one point that said they they do seem to have remained friends regardless and uh, I mean uh, apocryphally Biggie uh, Christopher Wallace called her I think only about three days before he actually died and told her that he loved her Mm -hmm. and he was shot to death Soon after, by the Illuminati. The Illuminati. Yeah. <laughs> Tupac's ghost. Yeah. The, well, the on the other, and he was in the wrong side of the country, basically. But he shouldn't have been. He was on the west coast. Um, Democrats. Democrats. Yeah, so the her debut album Hardcore came out in, in 1996, which we'll, we'll talk more about the actual record in a minute. But I want to draw attention to something. 1996 was actually a particularly fecund year for hip hop. There was a lot of a lot of albums. This is a particularly fecund episode of the podcast for mm-hmm. the word fecund. Yeah, I know. Um, aside from comp- there was some comp- compilations with the big hitters like N.W.A. The Greatest Hits. LL Cool J had one. It's hard. It's really funny to think that LL Cool J was seen as being a really good rapper, but we just. Like, we don't think of don't him, him like, like that, that at, at all. all you know? I think of him as, as the chef in Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> exactly, you know. <laughs> is he not, was he not in a fucking like, CSI style rip off TV show? I'm pretty sure he was as well. Is that not Ice Cube? No, he's in that. He's in Law and Order. <laughs> no, that's is Ice Tea. Ice Tea. No, Ice Cube's, Ice Cube's in a, as a movie actor only. <laughs> is he? Yeah. Oh, they're all the same. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Um, but uh, Dr. Dre released uh, one of his aftermath compilations, which can t- which had a lot of like debut tracks from a lot of well artists who would then go on to become well known. But apart from that, there's a bunch of other records that came out came out that year. Jay Z's debut album, Reasonable Doubt, came out. Buster Rhymes' debut, The Coming, The Score by the Fugees, um, mm-hmm. All Eyes on Me by Tupac, uh, The Dog Father by Snoop Dogg, Ice T, uh, Six, The Return of the Real, um, Beats and Rhymes by a Tribe Called Quest, Nas's second album, It Was Written. The Roots released Philadelphia, Half-Life, DJ Shadow released Introducing, which we've done on this podcast before. Ghostface Killer's debut album, Iron Man. Outcast released 80 Aliens. There was albums by Mob Deep, Fox for Foxy Brown, Redman. Even fucking Shaquille O'Neal released a hip-hop record this year, man. Imagine the, the sales on those as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like you said, this album went platinum three times, I think, tw- twice. Twice, twice I think, yeah. yeah. Um, I I, see, see, before we get too far away from it, I think mm-hmm. on the back of that comment about Biggie, to contextualise Lil' Kim and Lil' Kim's sort of take on the world, it's worth adding that her experience of abusive relationships, having started with her father, as we mentioned, and having continued with Biggie, went beyond that as well. In 2002, she started uh, dating a guy called Damien Hardy, Damien World Hardy. Uh, the couple split in 2003, and it was during that time that she'd been a victim of physical abuse. And then I think he went on to kill six people. I think he's still in jail. Seriously? I think so, yeah. Fucking I can't remember. I was, 
one of her exes who was abusive towards her. I was reading, I can't remember the guy's name, but he he later went on to be a murderer and he is in jail for murdering wow. six people. Well, I don't uh, know if it's him or another one, but it's de- definitely in that era. Well, more recently, uh, Mr. Papers. Um, it sounds like a character from Bojack Horseman. Um, <laughs> Mr. Papers, who's the father of her daughter, I think, mm-hmm. uh, um, threatened to kill her on Twitter if he ever caught her cheating. We'll come back to this because this is unfortunately very relevant to a lot of her story. Mm-hmm. Um, from 98 to 2000, she continued working with Big's best friend, Damien Darock Butler, whose name will come up yes, um, again very soon. And she started touring and modelling and she was getting really into fashion. The salt and pepper reference that I made was quite important because in many ways she kind of sees herself as being like the combination of MC Light and Salt and Pepper. Salt and Pepper were I've never really been taken seriously as a hip hop like force because they were they, they were quite poppy and also attached to fashion and you know that whole kind of fashionista style culture in the eighties um, and that was a huge influence on her. Hence you know her fixation with fashion and working I guess as a model which she kind of did. She's also kind of ahead of the curve, but we'll, we'll talk about that a wee bit because rap and fashion brands are now just fucking synonymous, aren't they? Yeah. Um, she even she 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 wore an outfit that was so shocking to Diana Ross <laughs> in the nineteen ninety nine MTV Music Video Awards. She she, uh, she had her tits out on TV basically. Jig- jiggled her titty, I yeah. believe, is the technical phrase. Um, mm-hmm. The Washington Post considered that incident solidified Kim's image of sexual fearlessness and her career as a fashion trend. Oh, I we'll, we'll we'll talk about that. Um, in terms of just her musical career, uh, yeah, she the next that, that the following year she released her second album, The Notorious KIM. Pay me on time, or I got to take mine. At first I seem friendly, but that's just in me. I'm warning you, when I blow it gets a little windy. You make me wanna fight you. I ain't nothing like you. Y'all paper thin, my shit recycled. They call me Little Kim, aka Cover Girl. Yep. Um, which I guess the name was kind of partly in tribute to like, Notorious. B.I.G. Yeah. I, I think after the tour, I think she did the tour with Puff Daddy. I think she kind of took a bit of a hiatus from music for a bit because she was so stunned by Biggie's death. Um, but that album came back and it's a totally different look entirely. Yeah, I totally revamped, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, um, was it not at this time as well, like that feud with the Foxy Brown, the kind of legendary feud between the two of them sort of mm-hmm. escalated? Yeah. That, that album came out, it debuted at number four in the Billboard 200 and number one in the top R&B albums. Um, went platinum four weeks after its release, which is pretty mental. But another thing, talking about being a trendsetter, is like it was the following year she did Lady Marmalade. Aye, which that was number one, yeah, single, yeah, but again. Huge. Ahead of the curve, you know, it's like taking rap and working with like pop artists and, and trying to make something that crosses boundaries. The album itself is it's actually pretty good. Uh, the sound's certainly different, but I think it's because you've not got the same executive producers. You know, music's moved on a little bit. The G-Funk sound, which was quite apparent in, in kind of mid-90s hip-hop, it was sort of kind of giving weight and more kind of clubby sort of stuff. She said it was more versatile than her last album. The first track has CeeLo Green on it, which is nice. Um, 
Um, it's also got a really cool militaristic feel to it. It's kind of really downbeat and quite cinematic, so straight away she's moving away from the sound and hardcore. There's a song called Suck My Dick, because of course there fucking is. Um, it's also quite, it's quite a dark song. It's, it's another tear down of how men treat women, um, but not in the same fashion as done in hardcore. It's sort of different. To all my motherfucking getting money hoes, booster selling clothes, and all my ghetto bitches in the project, coming through like bulldozers. No, we ain't sober. Bum bitches know better than a star shit. Niggas love a hard bitch. One that. Uh, single black female, like you said earlier on, is often held up as being a massive call at arms for women. Um, it was a really popular song. I think the song's fine, personally. Sometimes the gals forget cause <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Frontin' like they bulletproof. Little Kim this, little Kim that. She rap, but stay bangin' little Kim tracks. Ooh, your career's on a rock again. There's a song towards the end, I think it's the last song on the record, Hold On, which has got Mary J. Blige on it, and it's a really slow song. It's actually surprisingly vulnerable. You have no idea what you did to this nation. I fucking hate you. Excuse my frustration. But just when I'm about to quit, God tells me to just... You don't often see that in hip-hop, you know, it's particularly in the machismo of of gangster rap and, and things that come out of that. Um, she talks a lot about Biggie and how how, her de- how his death affected her and it's a really vulnerable moment and quite a rarity in this era for her to kind of show a little bit more of someone that doesn't just like fucking. <laughs> to put herself out there. Yeah. 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 Um, it was quite rare for her to kind of show that, you know. Still speaking from the heart though. Yeah, totally. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good song as well. Mary J. Bice is obviously a great singer, so yeah. 2003? 2003, the, our next album, La Bella Mafia. Now here's a little story I got to tell. Got the first rap bitch to rock Chanel. Taught you how to get money and pop Cristal. Even gave y'all tips to rock clock as well. The beehive sticker say better beware. If it's buzzing in the Number five in the Billboard 200. Selling 166,000 copies in its first week. Um, Did a string of concerts with DMX and Naz. Naz, yeah, yeah uh-huh. Um... This is an interesting record. Uh, the first track, Hold It, uses a, has, got the sa- has got a sample from Paul Revere by the Beastie Boys. And as a result, it gives it such a fucking party vibe, man. It totally slaps. Oh, I really like this song. It's so much fun. Another couple of highlights, Can't Fuck With Queen Bee. Very chilled, laid back, very much early 2000s R&B vibe. I don't even need to give you an example of what that sounds like. You know what that sounds like in your head already. <laughs> Um, Thug Love has got a guy called Twist on it who actually turns in a really great performance. Magic Stick went the number two, the was, single. Didn't I was it? going to say Magic Stick, 50 Cent appears in it. So that song was actually written for somebody else. And was supposed to appear on his debut album, Get Rich or Die Trying, but mm-hmm. she, it was given to her. She couldn't finish it in time for the record and uh, thus ended up on this. I 
it's another typically filthy song from from Lil Kim. Um, it does have a clubby party vibe because that's what was happening at that time. Fifty Cent's biggest hits around the era. It's, it's pretty much sounds like that, you know. Um, so it, this was nominated for five social awards and won two of them. Uh, the two prizes were female hip hop artist of the year and female single of the year. <laughs> Shocker. Still happens to this day. Those 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 awards, right? Yeah. Um, Life so. And a few years later, she released The Naked Truth, which just happened to be released at the same time as she was serving a prison sentence for perjury. That's interesting, right? So she went to, to jail for a year in 2005 on three counts of conspiracy and one count of perjury. The, the whole thing's all very gangster, all very OG. An incident basically took place in 2001 outside Hot 97 radio studios in Manhattan. It included a gunfight and a member of one rapper's entourage being shot in the back. Bizarrely, it all seems to have stemmed from her feud with Foxy Brown that we talked about earlier on. And uh, during the trial, she testified not to have known that that same Mr. D Rock Butler <laughs> and Sweet Jackson were at the scene despite CCTV clearly showing all three of them actually leaving together. Uh, as they left, uh, shooting broke out. Over 20 shots were fired between two groups of three people. Uh, ironically, the other group of people featured the rapper whose latest record also featured Lil' Kim, so it wasn't like they weren't buds. <laughs> um, detectives later said that the motive for the shooting lay behind the lyrics of Foxy Brown's song Bang Bang. Wow, which I obviously very fitting. I just cut that in. I'm sure the profundity is not lost in anyone. Um, Whether or not she's putting a spin in it, uh, she's spoken fondly of the people she met in jail, uh, claiming to have forged some great friendships that she maintains to this day. Yeah, as you say, so it came to pass that Lil Kim released that album, The Naked Truth, while still in jail. It earned a five mic rating from the source, and she was the only female rapper to ever receive five. It did, yeah. Um, It's an interesting record in the sense that there's a couple of shots of the Junior Mafia on this record who I think, you know, were... She was loyal to them and then it turned out that they told a different version of the story and they end up she went to jail for perjury because she was obviously lying. So there's a couple of songs in this record which specifically take shots at the Junior Mafia and saying that that shit's done, you know. Mm. Fuck these guys, like, we're out. Um, You hate to see it. There's a couple of things on this record that I think are worth mentioning. The two singles are pretty cool. Lighters Up is a really good tra- it's track. It's got this kind of Caribbean lilt to it. And Woe's pretty decent, um, although she does drop a hard F, which makes me sad. Um, it's just the first time she actually starts dropping the, 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 the F word, faggot, uh, in, this, in this record. You hadn't done it before. Which is kind of weird. Um, all good has got Biggie's voice in it. Which come on, stop fucking sampling him. He's, he's been dead for a long time. It's like Joe Biden and Barack Obama in it. Yeah, 
Um, that song talks about her being in prison, so it's it's pretty quote unquote legit. <laughs> um, she talks about her past, like the, the drug running at sixteen and all that. That's where she she kind of speaks yeah. about that. Um, there's a song in it called Quiet that I wanted to call it specifically because Quiet, it, Quiet, yeah. When the sun goes down and the guns come out The niggas that was talking, they won't run their mouth When the shadows start popping, bodies start dropping So why you When the sun goes down and the guns come out um, It features the game, who is a Dr. J affiliate One of the prodigies for the aftermath, Kenny Ida And Kim, I'm not gonna... I'm, this might sound a bit misogynistic, but it's not, right? Mm-hmm. She's always a really... <laughs> he said it's not, so it's, it's always not. A, It's always a really... You hear that? It's always a really weird... It's always a really, <laughs> really weird opening. But she straight up mim- mim- mimics Eminem's flow in this song. Like, I know what's right from what's wrong. I know what's soft from what's hard. I know a federal case from a publicity charge. Man, I fought to for nail to keep the punks out of jail. But hoes want to go to court for not paying for the nails. Who you trying to be? Man, it couldn't be me. My man's big Right down to the like the, the enunciation and everything. It's really bizarre, man. I don't see how that's misogynistic. I think that's just plagiaristic. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I like that song. I hated that song as a result. Of that the game was affiliated with you know all that with all that all that crew. You know what I mean? And it's kind of weird. Um, mm. She kind of spoke around this era about wanting to work with Doctor Dre and stuff. And these are West Coast rappers. You know what I mean? So that would have been unheard of when hardcore came out, working with people on you know who were basically the enemy. You know, so things have definitely changed in terms of, although there's still hints of gangster rap in terms of her style, um, the beef or the feud between East and West Coast had obviously long dissipated and she was happy to go away and embrace talent. She said she wanted to work with Dr. Dre and stuff like that as well, you know, so it's it's quite... Yeah, I mean, the record itself didn't sell as well as her previous ones. Um, She'd said that the prison sentence had left her with no time to promote the project itself. So despite it giving it that air of legitimacy, she claims it also hampered the kind of typical promotional schedule. Mm -hmm. Uh, In May 2006, Debbie Harry released a song in tribute to Lil' Kim called Dirty and Deep in protest of her conviction. (laughs) My tail's gonna rattle. You're just in time to jump in the saddle You'll be up a creek without your paddle Well, you ain't ready for my sexy battle You got no disguise We could do it sneaky side to side Coming at my curlies with you But she did it What? <laughs> I didn't know that <laughs> Just in protest of her getting sent to jail For being guilty, being guilty of perjury <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but come on Can you just let it go? Maybe that's what the song goes yeah. like We'll find out I'm going to cut it in It probably doesn't Um... I mean, she's, she's released a series of mixtapes as well, though, because eh? just not that long after that, about 2008, she brought out Ms. G-O-A-T, Ms. Yeah. Goat, Greatest of All Time. Mr. C and my man Who Kid present to you Ms. Goat, Little Kim. Go in! Smoke some law to this Monty bra. I'm the dopest female that you've heard this far. It don't get no better than a transceptor got a trap for... And the second one was... It was Black Friday in t- 2011. Yeah, so after The Naked Truth came out, she left Atlantic Records. She, she basically said that partnership was essentially done. Um, she wanted to go away and exp- explore her own kind of avenues of releasing music. So it kind of does make sense that mixtapes would be the next thing. They were starting to become I mean they've always been a thing in hip hop but with mixtape you can just rap over anything and doesn't and rights don't matter you know. I haven't heard Mrs. As, as discussed on our Geodella episode and on our 
MF Doom. And on our <laughs> Death Grips episode. Yeah, Death Grips as well. We did X Military. I think introduce him as one of the ones we've discussed it a lot. Put it that we way. We've been doing this a long time. Yeah, though. we have. Um, I haven't listened to the goat, the, the Miss Goat mixtape because it's not on a streaming service. I think it's on Spot. I think it's on YouTube. It received generally good reviews. After that came out, she pottered about doing various different things. She was on Dancing with the Stars in 2009. She did a song with with Ludacris in 2010 called Hey Ho. She released a Black Friday mixtape in 2011, which is essentially a response to Nicki Minaj. Um, The titles are playing her debut album Pink Friday, and the cover literally has a picture of her decapitating Nicki Minaj on it. Yeah. It got bad reviews. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be an issue as well. Yeah. That we'll that come back to. Our next, a lot of things to come back to. There's, a lot of things. They're stacking yeah. up here. As a, our next release after that was a mixtape called Hardcore, which is like a pseudo sequel, a Hardcore 2014, sorry, which is a pseudo sequel to Hardcore. I got these hoes real sick like a stomachache. Blue face, rollies, animals on my vertebrae. We out the country, nah, we don't do states. Married to the game, nah, we don't do dates. I'm eating good, but I gotta wash my weight. 14 carats. It was delayed for over a year for some reason and it got some really bad reviews. <laughs> um, and then she released a, a, a mixtape after that called Lil' Kim Season which is her, her literally freestyling over a bunch of other songs and beats by other artists like Drake and all that. Um, it got some decent reviews. A wealthy gutter bitch out of public housing Where we scream, fuck the other side, no arousement Chanel La Boy, 250 wildin' I'm talking 250,000 and her latest release is Nine, which came out in 2019, and it's her first studio album, so 2005. It's a very modern sounding record, it's really dark, it's got, it's got some trap artists on it, it's quite trappy in places, it's got that kind of druggy, you know, slowed down, like uh, purple drank kind of feel, you know, that chopped and screwed thing mm-hmm. that DJ, uh, DJ Screw kind of pioneered. Um, it's only 35 minutes long as well, so a really short record. One song on it that I think was alright, was a song called Too Bad. It's very trappy. It's got that kind of warped two-beat thing. It's got some nice, nice beats and nice synthy bits in it as well. But there's really not much to write home about on that album at all. I would say. Any idea about the significance of nine? I mean, I know that's the age she was when her parents divorced, but I don't know. I think if you count her mixtapes, it's technically her ninth album. Ah, right. Okay, of course I'm forgetting the four. So four mixtapes, and that's her fifth album. So technically, ninth record. Um, Can we uh, go back to just very quickly that notion of branding and endorsements? Because like most good gangster rappers uh, she went into merchandising and endorsements fairly big mm-hmm. time uh, 2004 it was announced that Lil Kim would launch a designer watch collection uh, titled Royalty by Lil Kim uh, she debuted her first clothing line which I think was called Hollywood mm-hmm. is that right and 2010 August 2010 she signed a deal with Three Olives Vodka to become the face for their purple vodka mm-hmm. In September that same year, along with her cousin, woman called Catrice Jones, she opened a beauty salon in Charlotte, North Carolina, called Salon Sissoua. My dad's been to Charlotte, North Carolina quite a lot, and I never really understood why he picked it. 
Maybe, maybe that's why I'm maybe, getting maybe his fucking it. nails done. I've got family in America, but only the aunt and uncle are still evangelical Christians, and they live in Asheville, North Carolina, which is not far from Charlotte. Aye, aye it's, a, it's a funky place. It's a funky place. Uh, she then launched a second clothing line entitled 24-7 Goddess Collection, which sounds like something you'd get in Asda. Yep. Um, <laughs> in November 2012, she began endorsing Ciroc Vodka, I, I don't know what nice happened. vodka. I don't know what happened to Three Olives Vodka. Um, yeah, <laughs> revealing she had her own cocktail titled Queen Bee. Uh, she was announced as first lady of the brand. How do you get your own cocktail? Can can you just make one? Was it a vodka cocktail? Given but, that it was Ciroc, I think it has to be. Yeah, it's not going to promote the company very well. If you. <laughs> <laughs> um, in twenty ten, she launched a signature milkshake. Also titled Queen Bee, uh, at millions of milkshakes in West Hollywood, with the proceeds going towards Wycliffe Jean's Yelly Haiti Foundation. That, by the way, is the same charity that was found guilty of fraud, where they were basically <laughs> misappropriating all the charity funding and not putting it. That, towards that's the gangster there. life. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, she has she has known for a fair bit of philanthropy and charity as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, endorsement for the Mac AIDS Fund, where Mary J. Blige raised about four million dollars for them. Uh, Two thousand and one, Lil Kim performed at Breathe, which was a benefit. Concert for Breast Cancer Research and Treatment 2005 uh, Along with several other artists Appeared in an episode of The Apprentice Each artist was approached to donate A personal experience to be auctioned off For charity um, And hers went to the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation And that same year I think she donated a diamond watch From that aforementioned royalty collection uh, To World AIDS Day Auction of some sort So she's you know, she's she's done a fair bit as well as selling a fair amount of bling and yeah. vodka and milkshakes. That that is business right. diversification. Yeah, that got to diversify. Yeah, that's how you make it big. Mm. And that's not to mention like her endorsements, really, like Prada and Gucci and all that stuff over years as well, yeah. because she's yeah. obviously been really into fashion. I mean, another indispensable part of hip hop and rap, especially gangster rap. Uh, our beefs and feuds mm-hmm. Can we, we pick a couple of these out Just to elaborate a little Because we've mentioned We've alluded to the Foxy Brown one mm-hmm. That is a I mean, and, and by the way This is not just a Woman going at other women This is definitely <laughs> Across the board In gangster rap As we found out With Tupac and Biggie mm-hmm. um, uh, The Foxy Brown Lil' Kim beef though Is notorious Since it reputedly played a big part in the shooting and thus her time in jail um, as I said right at the start they were once kind of high school I don't know if they were friends but they were peers and they remained relatively in touch uh, despite becoming associates I think of clashing hip hop groups so Junior Mafia and The Firm were sort of at loggerheads I think mm. uh, and so they'd split loyalties there their first dispute developed after both of the debut soul studio albums were scheduled for release about a week apart in '96. Media outlets noticed similarities between the sleeve covers. '97, the feud led to a deterioration of the friendship and resulted in cancellation of what was a planned collaborative album called Thelma and Louise. Say my name, baby, before you nut. I'ma dribble down your butt cheeks, make you wriggle and giggle just a little. I'm drinking bait, then I crack for the mistakes. Foxy Brown noted that the breakdown in the relationship was also influenced by their entourages, the fact that their entourages were at odds all the time. Um, they first attempted a reconciliation in 98. Uh, Lil' Kim had called Foxy Brown and her mother after the two were held at gunpoint during a house burglary. But then after that, there were a series of diss tracks and then just really snidey digs appearing here and there and different things they were recording uh, by them and their entourages and associates 
and it sort of meant that it derailed any idea of a reconciliation between them. It does seem that a fair amount of fuel was added to the fire by others around them, including Puff Daddy. And to be honest, that kind of made me think maybe for a lot of those people that were adding fuel to that fire, the feud was kind of good for business. Well, you know, it's, uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was a lot. You mean it's like a work, like a, a kayfabe? Not, not, not just a work, but part of it probably is a work. I think some to some degree it will be a work, but they love wrestling rappers right yeah. so they're, they're, they're totally down with the kayfabe lifestyle of like is this a real dispute or is this a work so speaking of wrestlers uh, wrestling um, apparently black people really love Jeff Hardy don't know why <laughs> hang on Mark I've got a sound effect for you <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I found that out because uh, the Ringer Wrestling Podcast is one of my frequent listening to podcasts and one, one of the guys Kaz used to work for WWE used to be a writer for them and he's, he's always saying that yeah well, us black folks, we fucking love Jeff Hardy. <laughs> right, okay, so it's a um, quote. Yeah, it's a quote. Uh, but I think one thing I want to kind of bring up in relation to that is that obviously there's probably some bad, bad blood there between those two. Maybe because of the, maybe it's been engineered to a degree by people that are around them, and that's probably fair. But there's precedent for that, you know. Like that's been happening since female rappers started to get prominence in the eighties as well. You know, like Big Damn Productions was, which is KRS One's A group. You know, the Roxanne Shanty was like one that was an was a rapper who was destined to become really quite big. Early one morning I was laying in my heart shaped bed. Red silk sheets over my head. My servant came running in. Shante rise. Yes, what is it? I said, rubbing my eyes. Listen up. Like one of the first proper female artists like outside of Queen Latifah really. Uh, and she was basically torn down by the Boogie Down Productions because they just didn't like her. And they had their own affiliate called uh, <laughs> the Real Roxanne, <laughs> which is totally <laughs> bizarre. Um, so, you know, this kind of thing has been happening since the 80s, you know what I mean? It's, and you kind of wonder, is, is, is this... Is this guys playing women off each other because they're affiliated with a crew? Because often, a lot of the time, Lil Kim is a, was probably one of the first female rappers to not be a plus one. You know, yeah. Um, she was like she was able to stand on her own as part of a crew. She wasn't just an addition to do like a, a, like a vocal or like a singing part. You know what I mean? And that's like kind of plays a little bit more into the misogyny of the culture, which I guess is something we'll touch on in a wee second. But I think in terms of beasts, there's probably an element of that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, well in two thousand and one kind of shaken up by that shooting incident at the hotel as we mentioned between entourages Foxy Brown apparently tried to reach out to Lil Kim in hopes of some sort of truce Foxy Brown stated that uh, I want to have a sit down with Kim I don't care what it is let's just end it we can even do a collaboration we're bigger than this if it has to start with me let it start with me Uh, so she extended that olive branch but Kim said that she wanted no communication whatsoever so that was that Another beef, uh, which is a little bit more modern and seems less to do with the potential of entourages and record labels to be at it, uh, is the woman Nicki Minaj. That seems particularly focused on image and appropriation and a sense of not paying your dues. Uh, Lil' Kim was embroiled with that since the success of Pink Friday, Mm -hmm. which you mentioned. Both Lil' Kim and the media and a number of critics had noticed resemblances with her on the, was it Sucker Free mixtape? Mm-hmm. Is that right? And Lil' Kim accused Nicki Minaj of copying her image, saying, if you're going to steal my swag, you're going to have to pay. Something's got to give. You help me, I help you. That's how it goes. Minaj's single Roman's Revenge with Eminem was understood by critics to be a response to Lil' Kim's comments, although I think at the time she denied that. The fuck I look like getting back to a has-been. Yeah, I said it, has-been. Hang it up, flat screen. <laughs> Plasma, hey niggie, hey niggie. Asthma, I got the pumps, it ain't got medicine, I got bars. Still going as well, you know, um, one of the things that I was going to bring up 
wouldn't waste it that is this is actually going to come into my nexus as well so I'm kind of giving a wee bit away here but um, Nicki Minaj also has a feud with Cardi B and Cardi B is really good really good friends with Lil Kim Lil Kim is kind of supporting her in that in that feud I guess um, so it's still going literally I literally had a news article about it earlier on today which was I think was 22 hours old <laughs> When I read about it, <laughs> so you know, it's the algorithm. Yeah, it never lies. <laughs> I, I think that second feud, the the Nicki Minaj one, to some extent, underlines how important Image was to Lil Kim uh, to what she was doing. Definitely, uh, man. Yeah. yeah, and I think so. That's probably an interesting way to take the conversation. A good place to probably start it off then is some of the female rappers that were big before Lil Kim. They were not as conscious about that kind of thing, with the exception of Salt and Pepper. So Queen Latifah, for example, she was not particularly sexualized and deliberately so. She'd often talk. She was often talking about strong, like strong femalehood and being strong African American women, but with emphasis on African. And she was probably the probably the, one of the biggest rappers at the time mm-hmm. prior to her. Um, Image was not really in the purview of her or MCLA or even really Roxanne Shanti and that kind of thing, the people that came before her. Image is still relevant, but you're talking about very different kinds of image. Yeah, well, I, th- I think yeah. when, when I talk about image, I mean um, fashion. Yeah, so let, let's dig down into that because I, I want to talk about why Little Kim was different and what she represents. I mean, obviously, rap is notoriously macho. Was she actually a response to that and you know in some way liberating or was she something else and I spent a lot of this week when I was trying not to listen to the actual music (laughs) just really seeing what people had to say about Lil Kim and people who knew a damn sight more than me both about black womanhood (laughs) which by the way I don't know a lot about (laughs) I don't know if you guys noticed that you think I'm the voice of authority here (laughs) (laughs) Um, but also just about the genre as well and the context in which it's kind of couched clearly I don't think I'm getting ahead of myself to say it's an extremely sexualized uh, image overall Mm -hmm. with an emphasis uh, and this is just appearances wise on scant and sometimes basically non-existent clothing, as you, you mentioned, for those music awards. Changing and eccentric hairstyles, a lot of wigs, accentuated and very much emphasised femininity, inverted commas. Um, I mean, Lil' Kim's own upbringing and her own history is relevant to this, I think. Uh, maybe a little bit of pop psychoanalysis here, but she grew up in a mostly white neighbourhood where she says you know, daily taunts about her looks left her deeply insecure from a young age. Uh, as she got older, she's described how men, even men she cared about and was with, would tell her she wasn't pretty enough. She's quoted as saying, to this day when someone says I'm cute, I can't see it. Uh, I don't see it no matter what anybody says. That was, that was in an interview with Newsweek. Getting to look like a, quote, movie star in expensive clothes helped her to deal with low self-esteem, but it didn't fix the issue. Again, she said, I think doing photo shoots and seeing all the people respond to me has helped, but I still don't see what they see. Tupac, who we've mentioned a couple of times here, his lyrics to hit him up probably didn't help. Quote, uh, Lil Kim, don't fuck around with real G's. Quick to snatch your ugly ass off the streets. So fuck peace. Uh, 
Uh, she says her boyfriend's often cheated on her with, quote, European-looking women. <laughs> I think that phrase is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. <laughs> I don't know if that just means skinny white bitches yeah. or something you similar. Should, you need to play the hang for that. Hang on, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, as mentioned earlier on Her relationship with that guy Damien Hardy Who may or may not be the person that went on I think it was It's just the guy that also broke her nose Yeah Yeah a- And after she had it done Yeah Yeah that's the same guy He's, That led to yeah. a couple of broken noses And cosmetic surgery to correct the damage She's quoted as saying I just got out of a relationship with a very bad man I've had a black eye Black lips Broken nose I came out of the hospital from getting my nose done And he broke it again I've had to have MRIs Because he beat me up so bad I couldn't even move I've had blood clots in my back one day a voice told me you better leave right now i had to leave from my own damn house however on the back of that surgical and cosmetic procedures became the norm for her through the 2000s it's become a major talking point in her career in later years she doesn't deny surgeries in any way which i think is something that is semi-common now is for people to deny fairly evident surgeries and procedures um, you know where they falsely attribute it to diets and exercise and that's a whole Chad Kroger other. anyone? <laughs> I think there's people a little bit more yeah, guilty than Chad I Kroger I, just one mind. <laughs> I don't know that many guys that are kind of about going oh I really want to get that Chad Kroger look yeah, it doesn't um, Jesus, I guess so. uh, quite apart from the usual controversies um, similar controversies experienced by Beyonce for straightening and bleaching hair or, you know, blonde wigs. It's a bone of contention with a lot of black women. And, and Yeah, you know. absolutely. And understandably, I think, and we'll, we'll hear from a couple of black women on that subject shortly. Um, the extent of her surgeries and procedures basically left a bearing little resemblance to the young black women that joined Junior Mafia. Um, one delicate issue is the apparent whitening of her skin. Yeah. Um, there's no disputing that in the space of two decades, she certainly lost a number of what you could maybe call traditionally African-American characteristics. Um, yeah, most, I think most recently in a viral video, she said that she felt like a Latina trapped in a black girl's body. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, I mean, she said she said during one of the Hot 97 radio appearances that her use of cosmetic procedures has become excessive. So I'm, I'm interested about control of image. Um, people close to her, apparently, have questioned how much control she actually has or had over her commercial image. Uh, Asha Bandel of the Washington Post argued that Kim was, quote, just like every little abused girl she knew growing up and wasn't in control of her caricature persona. Uh, Biggie Small's mum, uh, musician Valletta Wallace, also observed that she felt Kim needed to allow audiences to see the human being and not the sex symbol, implying that she was prevented from doing so. Uh, in a book called The Motherload, which is about 100 plus women who made rap um, by Clover Hope and uh, Rochelle Barker, it said that Lance Unrivera, the guy who co-founded Undays Recordings with Biggie Smalls, I think it was, uh, had a purposeful, quote, strategy when shaping Kim's image as the, quote, side chick and not the wife. So I thought it was interesting, you, you know, that she was referred to as the mistress in a, that ruined mm. Biggie Smalls' original relationship. That quote continues... Uh, it's all driven by the male ego the fantasy it's not about love it's about being nasty and that's in his words you know when he's talking about his product and so Lil Kim's image has become I mean it, 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 uh, intertwined with, with her music uh, it's totally inseparable now I think in most people's minds and it's it's actually the basis for a lot to completely undermine her regardless of her output mm-hmm. what did you make of that Marissa? Um, first of all, like what, yeah. that whole Diana Ross incident, she was wearing a jumpsuit. Um, 
like fair enough one of her uh, breasts was exposed but um i mean we're saying worse <laughs> um yeah i don't know if it was manufactured or not i feel like to an extent it was but i can only speculate but i feel her look what's revolutionized was very symptomatic of what was going on in that era like musically and in terms of the fashion mm-hmm. um yeah. so i think she influenced it but she was also heavily influenced by it mm-hmm. Just to kind of pick a little bit up on that, for me it's more apparent in Notorious K.I.M. era, like with the Moulin Rouge, like she looks like she, you could, like, obviously she's still, she's a black woman, but she looks a hell of a lot like Christina Aguilera, you know, in terms of like the, you look in, in that, just that one video and that's the era that... That's also because Christina Aguilera was going the other way. Yeah, Thank you. Know, but <laughs> Thank you. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that for me, the, the era that I remember, I wasn't even aware of music in the, in the mid-90s, but in the, the mid-2000s I was, I had seen music videos and TV and stuff like that. And yeah, like our image does seem to revolve around what is also kind of hot at the time. Yeah. I mean hot in the sense of, you know, what's cool, you know, what's happening. Yeah. What the beauty industry was promoting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that's, no, that's specifically image. To, to, to go a little bit further than that, talking about sexuality, like Queen of Rap. Okay, let's take a wee break, take a wee breather, we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about Lil' Kim and her life and feminism and, you know, everything that's involved. <laughs> 